Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Welcome to yet another episode of the Human Experience Live show. We've got an incredible show planned for you guys today, so sit back, grab a drink, and enjoy this conversation. My guest for today is Mr. Stephen Kotler. Stephen is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author who studies the potential of humans, technology, and culture as we advance into the future. An expert in flow states, Stephen is co-founder and director of research at the Flow Genome Project. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, such as the Pulitzer Prize-nominated Stealing Fire. Stephen's work has been translated into over 40 languages, and appeared in, he has appeared in over 100 publications. Stephen, it's a pleasure to have you join us once again. Welcome back to HXP. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate yeah, it. It's, it's been a couple years, and it seems like you, all you do, you just churn out books. That's what you do. That's, that's your job. Yeah, you know, I'm writing to save my life, so why stop? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really amazing the different topics that you cover. So, I mean, let's 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 talk about it. How do you, you know, how do you come up with what you're going to write about? It's an interesting question because what I'm going to write about often um it finds me years in advance. I I tend to see my books 5 to 10 years out. And then slowly gather in bits of information until I think I've got something coherent. And sometimes, for example, Stealing Fire started out originally as a book about economics, believe it or not, um, of all things. Uh, and so, like, they, they don't start out uh, – they don't often end up where, where they start out. But I don't know. I've always been curious. But there, I haven't really encountered much that I'm not curious about. So as long as I, you know, as long as there's still things for me to learn, there's still things for me to write about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the last time we talked to you, we were covering the rise of Superman, which was an amazing exploration into the flow states and consciousness and how we can capture that for on the, on the everyday sort of consumer level version of that. And, and, and now, you know, you're, you're diving into this whole other realm of cyberspace, the cyber punk phenomena and you know it seems like you sort of based your inspiration for this book was william gibson right he how how did that become an inspiration for you you know uh there's a lot it came from a lot of different places but gibson was really powerful to me uh specifically i remember so clearly i just gotten out of college i was living in aspen colorado i was ski bumming and bartending basically um and working on my first novel and I read Neuromancer, um, and I and, and I remember reading that book and thinking, "Holy crap! This guy is talking about really big ideas, really hard." I mean, this is 1986, 87. He's talking about questions about AI is waking up and things like you know cyberspace years before the internet, and it was um, it was just so visionary. But I remember how much fun it was and how much of a page turner it was, and. It, that really stayed with me. I always sort of felt as a writer 
that if you're going to be there's so much shit to pay attention to in the world today if you're going to give me your attention right you're going to give me six or seven or eight hours of your life you're going to let me live in your head for that long while you read one of my books it is my job not just to kind of blow your mind um, and try to maybe you know teach you something um, but it's also my job to really engage you and entertain you and move you through a story. And I was really drawn to big philosophical hard ideas, as, as you know. Um, but I wanted to find a way to make them entertaining and not lose their intellectual quality. And this was, by the way, you have to understand that, like, as a writer, I, I, I came out as when I was a, I was hugely inspired by guys like Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace. And I got to study under the great John Barth and these you know, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writers, but they really pushed the edge of communication, hmm. right? They they were willing to sacrifice communication for art, and they were willing to say, okay, not everybody has to get it, but the people who are going to get it, it's really going to be deep. And I, I thought that was great, but I was always sort of a little bit interested in, can you make this a little more accessible? Can you not sacrifice the art, hmm. but can you make and, – and can you not sacrifice the, the intelligence and the level of conversation you know, in the book, be it fiction or nonfiction, but still make it wildly entertaining? And that's sort of always been my – in my goal in my books. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's – and that's really – I mean, it's something I learned from Gibson is that you could do both at the same time. Huh. Yeah. Uh, just really quick, Stephen. I'm getting word that there's there's a little bit of air hitting your microphone. So if you could just – maybe just back up a little bit on the mic, that might help. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, How's that? But is that better? That's much better. Thank you. So, okay. So, you know, what? I've, how many books have you written so far? I think it's been like 10 – this is your 10th book, right? Uh, 10 or 11. Okay. Um, I so I think eleven because I have a book that's done that's coming out in the fall. Mm, um, okay. And then I actually, as a matter of fact, Peter Diamandis and myself have a new book. I quote it's a sequel to Bold and the third in the trilogy um, between after Bold and Abundance coming out in February. And I literally finished that today at like four a.m. or five a.m. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, it's it's twelve that are I think done, but I think it's ten that are out. I think. You know, so I've I've listened to a bunch of interviews, and I remember our last interview. But I was as I was researching for this show, and, and I want to make this show a little bit different. So I want to get into your writing process, namely, like I, because I, I really want to know, you know, what harnesses that creativity for you? Like, how do you how do you decide to sit down, and what goes through your mind? Is there a ritual that you practice? Yeah, you know, I, I I've talked about this a, a little bit. Um, I always sort of do. The same thing. I try to get from my bed to my desk in under five minutes. Hmm. And I always start, and I can talk about why, but let me give you the rituals. Okay. Um, I write, I start writing at 4 a.m. every day, and I write from 4 a.m. till 8 a.m., basically. Uh, today I was excited to finish the book, so I got up a little earlier. Um, it just happened. But uh, um, I write from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., and I try to, like, bed to desk as fast as possible. Um, I write in absolute darkness. There's no lights in my office. Um, it's it's pitch black in here. Um, I, everything's turned off, so absolute you know silence and quiet. Well, sometimes I listen to music, usually the same song over and over and over and over again for whatever reason. Um, yeah, but it would, if it if the song sort of matches the the vibe or the emotion of what I'm trying to write, I'll just put it on repeat and listen to it a thousand times for mm -hmm. four hours. Hmm. Um, <laughs> that'll happen. Uh, and, but that's I mean that. That's that's my writing ritual, and I always edit 
uh, what I wrote the previous day as a way into what I'm writing today, uh, both because I think one of the advantages I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing, I, my, basically, I, you know, I'm always, my advantage, one of my advantages has always been hard work. And I realized very early on in my career that writers don't like to edit a whole lot. And the, a lot of the writers, a lot of the journalists I knew were only kind of proofreading their, their articles or their books one or two or three times. So I was like, well, hell, if I'm going to compete with them, I'm going to proofread it 5, 10, 20 times. I'm just going to keep going until I think it's perfect um, every time. And I thought that was an advantage. So um, it also works because proofreading has a lot of pattern recognition in it. And when we link ideas together, when you go, oh, this word isn't quite right, but this word will, will really fit in the sentence and there's rhythm there. Well, that stuff starts to release dopamine. Hmm. Uh, dopamine shows up whenever the brain connects ideas together, right? And right. dopamine is a focusing drug. And if you get enough of it into your system, you can start to drive yourself into flow. So I always like to edit first before I sort of face the blank page of what I got to add on because mm -hmm. it's push, pushing me much closer to flow uh, before I actually get to the, oh, my God, what am I going to write today? And then I very uh, – I, I, I write in a layered process. Okay. Um, so the first time through – and I've learned this over the years. Uh, for I used to always start with style, what tone, what rhythm, how do I want the language to work? And I discovered that was a disaster for me because it would lock me into a style before I actually knew what the hell I was talking about. And sometimes the style didn't fit the substance. Mm -hmm. and then you had all kinds of problems. So these days, I, the first thing that goes in is like the who, what, where, when, and why, and how, and almost as fast as I can get it out, um, trying not to linger over the sentences and trying not to edit as much. My tendency is to always edit everything and be a perfectionist and perfect a sentence before I go on to the next one. And I try to move past that and not do that. Uh, and the second layer is the information layer. It's where I really put in, you know, if I'm writing fiction, it's where the ideas or the dialogue will start to get into the, into the plot. If I'm writing, you know, nonfiction, it's, it's usually, you know, my big, the big ideas that are going to go into a section. And then the last thing that happens is the style goes on at the end. Um, and I write, I write that way and I find, oh, I can write two or three times as fast. Hmm. It's, it's, it's really amazing because, you know, you, you seem to switch into different, you talked about almost everything that I can think of that I'm interested in. I mean, you've talked about flow, you've talked about psychedelics, you've talked about, you know, stealing fire. <laughs> I mean, so and there's, there's, there's so much that you is, is interesting to you. And so I found in this book, you shifted from, you know, nonfiction to this fiction aspect. And it, and it seems like it was, was it a little freeing for you? Did you feel more free writing in this style? Well, I, my, I'm, I'm trained as a novelist. Um, so, and my first book is a novel. Uh, and actually my second book is a novel, though it's a hidden in a drawer and I don't think anybody is ever going to see it. <laughs> but, uh, um, so I, I, I have a fiction background. So it wasn't, it was a return to that. And it was very, very, very freeing. Um, and especially, uh, because I had come out of it, you know, I, I wrote, uh, we talked when I wrote uh, Rise of Superman. After that, I wrote Bold, which was a collaborative book. I wrote Peter Diamandis, and then I wrote Tomorrowland. Um, or right after Rise, I wrote Tomorrowland, and then I wrote Bold, which was collaborative with Peter. 
Um, and after Bold, I wrote Stealing Fire uh, with Jamie, and that was another mm-hmm. collaboration. And I really, you know, I was sort of tired of the collaborations. I really wanted to do my own thing for a little while. And this was incredibly freeing. It was the most fun I've ever had writing a book. I've never laughed so hard myself. And I, I work with, um, I have a, I have an editor I work with, though. Uh, I, uh, this last tango also had a fantastic, I, I don't want to give him short shift, a fantastic editor at St. Martin's that I got to work with as well, Pete Wolverton. But I work with a guy, Michael Wharton, who's edited all my stuff for about 25 years. He's my closest friend. And we both talk about like writing last tango as the most, I mean, we couldn't stop laughing. It was so much fun. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the process. What do you do, Stephen, when you hit the wall? I mean, you, you've you got to have those days where you just, you're not feeling it, right? Rarely. And the oh. reason is, so, I don't know if this is, so, all this stuff that we're talking about, I do a class through the, by the way, I left the Flow Genome Project six months ago. I, I, I'm the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. I basically took all the science work that we were doing um, and I spun it out into a separate organization My called apologies. the Flow Research Collective. No worries. No worries whatsoever. But uh, I, so I, with, through them, I do something called Flow for Writers and I do it twice a year. I think the next one is in L.A. in July. Um, July the 12th, 13th, and 14th. And it's essentially a two-day boot camp on all this stuff where we really sort of go into it. But this is one of the things I teach is how not to ever get writer's block, essentially. And so usually, 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 writer's block has three main causes. There are other reasons, and there can be other stuff, and there, fear is a real issue for writers. Fear can absolutely cause writer's block, and there's a lot of neurobiological reasons for that, and I can break it down if you care. But writing is an ongoing ne- negotiation with fear, so you have to have really solid practices in place to kind of lower fear and keep it down because it really for blocks the brain from thinking creatively. So that's mm-hmm. first and foremost. Sure. But most of the time, writer's block is one of three things for me. And I actually have watchwords. So for me, writer's block usually is you don't know your starts and your endings. You don't know where your chapter starts or where your chapter is going. You don't know where your section starts or where your section is ending. And if you don't know where your starts and your endings are, you're really screwed. Gabriel Garcia Marquez used to say, I spend years in my first paragraph and my last paragraph and months on everything in between. And he was totally right about that one. As far as I can tell. So that first and foremost. And the second thing is usually if you're confused, you don't know your starts or your endings or you haven't actually done enough research. So you don't know how to connect everything through. Right. That's those are the two most most critical causes of writer's block. The third cause is you haven't found the style you want to write in Mm -hmm. yet. That tends to be the third. So I literally and for me. I have learned over the years that my writing has tells and most people's writing has tells. So, for example, if my writing is confusing, if I'm working with my editor or reading my stuff and it's just, I'm lost, he's lost, whatever, we're confused because I don't know my starts and my endings. That's always the cause. Mm-hmm. If my writing is arrogant, I'm using a lot of fancy language and a lot of really kind of fancy sentences. I'm usually and often subconsciously trying to cover up for the fact that I haven't done enough research and I don't know what the hell I'm talking about Mm, yet. mm. And if my writing is arrogant, um, cocky in a sense, um, that's usually, uh, that's usually that, well, that sometimes could be, I haven't done enough research. 
Um, and sometimes it's just I haven't found the right style. And I, so I tend to look for those things. But um, the thing you have to know about the brain is the brain does a couple things really well. Okay. It does pattern recognition at a really basic level, right? We have giant pattern recognition machines for brains. And our brain also does narrative storytelling really well. Think about your own life. Your brain tells the story sequentially really easily, right? Mm -hmm. So I always tell people, if you know your starts, you know your endings, and you've done enough research, your brain will automatically do the hard work in between for you because it does that. It will build a story out of it. We'll do pattern recognition. Uh, recognition will find the connections so you can count on that you can count on the your natural biology to do its job you just have to know how to feed the system hmm, yeah it makes a lot of sense i mean it neuro it it does break down into a neurological system that's what's going on and you know but it, i find it interesting that you have those rare moments i mean i mean i'm talking to the person who is an expert at flow so it shouldn't surprise me as much but you know i, I find it interesting that you don't have that 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 feeling of just yeah, i just don't feel like writing today I just don't feel like oh no i have that feeling all the all the time <laughs> okay yeah i mean of course i have that feeling i'm a human being but like so first of all i always say this and it's it's it i don't Peak performance, if you really have been inside true peak performance, seen it up close, lived through it yourself, et cetera, et cetera, most of the time, really, when you're seeing exceptional human beings, what you're seeing is people who can get up and do the checklist. I wake up in the morning, there's 10 things on my checklist. I'm going to kick ass at all of them. I'm going to get some exercise. I'm going to get some food. I'm going to have a little bit of social time because that's good for my head. I'm going to have some kind of active recovery protocol. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it again. And that's usually what peak performance looks like. The difference is it's done over and over and over for years on end without, you know, without cessation. And it's not, you know, and you to do it, you have to not care how it feels. I always keep, tell people, uh, if you come to uh, one of our flow trainings or, or really any, any of my peak, any of the peak performance work that we do, um, and I, you know, whether we're working with individuals or organizations, I always tell people this work is not about happy or sad. It turns out that flow, you know, is, you know, deeply underpins um, well-being and life satisfaction, but it doesn't really underpin happiness moment by moment. How do I feel right now? How do I feel right now? It, it doesn't sort of work that way. And I'm less interested in happier sets. Not to say that I don't feel my emotions deeply and they don't rock my world um, like everything else, but it doesn't stop me from doing my job ever. Um, and usually I can take that energy and turn it into language. And that's, I mean, you know, that's what makes me a, 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 an artist, right? That was what makes me a creative is I can take whatever the world is giving me and I can turn it into art. I can turn it into creativity. I can turn it into language and I'll just keep going. I love that. Love that. So let, let's get into it, Stephen. Let's get into, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality. Let's talk about Last Tango in cyberspace because, I mean, you explore so many different things in this book. You're talking about the nature of consciousness, neuroscience, um, psychology, psychopharmacology. You're, you're talking about, I mean, there's enough drug use in the book. So <clears throat> what's, go, what's going I mean, like, what, what were you aiming to do? In in the in the sense of writing it, what were you trying to indicate to the people who read it? So uh, I think there was there's two big things I was I was really getting at, right? And the first is, you know, I've written over the past decade 
four books on technology and disruptive technology and, and, and accelerating technology and what's coming, abundance, bold, uh, tomorrow, and to some extent, stealing fire. And the thing with all those books is because the story's got to make sense, they're nonfiction. I'm talking about one technology at a time, mm-hmm. one innovation at a time. But that is really not the future, right? The future is everything at once, all these innovations at the same time. And people would always come up to me and say, Stephen, you know, what do you think the future, what, what's the world going to look like in five years and 10 years? These right. kinds of questions. And I was never dumb enough to try to answer them because I don't actually think you can answer them out loud coherently in that way. But what I could do is I could take all the stuff I was looking at and I could put it together and build a world. So I took our world, I took every technology, everything in the book with, I think, two exceptions is either real in the world today, just not widely distributed, or it's in a lab somewhere. Nothing is really made up. And all this stuff is going to be here over the next five years. So the timetable, as far as I can tell, is pretty damn accurate. In fact, three or four of the technologies when I started writing the book were fiction. And by the time the book was published, they were already in the real world, um, which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. But so I wanted to create a world. I wanted, I wanted people to be able to see, you have no idea the rate of technological change that's coming. Most people don't actually can't think exponentially. They don't understand how technology is growing and what it means. Um, so I wanted to, I want to, create a way so people could go live in that world. And I also, and as you'll notice, right, like there's consciousness altering technology, which could be my work from Stealing Fire and Rise of Superman, hmm. right next to um, a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, regular technology. And you pointed out the drug use, and it's, it's not really so much drug use as it is marijuana. And the, the reason was marijuana is another, at this point, it's an exponential technology that is spreading wildly and kind of weaving its way into culture at a much deeper level than it is it is today. And I mean, it's already pre- if you you know spend some time in California and Nevada, you know, in Washington and Oregon and these states, and it's already really deep into the culture. And that's you're going to get more of that as well. Um, so I wanted to put all this stuff together in a world and, and tell a really fun story, right? Um, tell 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 a story that would really grip people, but give people the chance to get a sense for sort of where we're going. And, you know, Ray Kurzweil, head of engineering at Google, who uh, kind of mapped all the exponential technologies and, and has been really deadly accurate with so many of his predictions, has pointed out that current kind of rates of exponential growth, we will experience 20,000 years of technological change over the next century. Hmm. This means we're going birth of agriculture to the Industrial Revolution twice over the next 81 years. That's insane. That means over the next 100 years or next 10 years, we're going to go through like 100 years worth of change. Just think about everything that happened technologically in the 20th century, and we're going to be there by 2030. That's the rate of change we're actually talking about in the world. So people have read, a lot of people have read the book and said, oh my God, like I, I see it all, but it feels like it's 30, 40 years in the future. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the point. That's what's happening. It's moving that quickly. So that was one of the big impetuses. And the second big impetus, which I think is the central theme of the book, which is the absolute unbelievable critical importance of empathy to the survival of the species, 
right? And I'm not really, I'm not just talking about empathy for all human beings, which is critically important, obviously, but I'm really focused on empathy for all, empathy for plants, for animals, for ecosystems, for empathy as the kind of the first step in really confronting the environmental challenges we now face. So those are the two things I was really focused on. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was I really connect with the explosion of technology. I was looking at this image of these guys for in in the 1950s they were loading like this uh 5 megabyte hard drive and it's it's this massive crate. There's four people pushing it into this back, the back of this <laughs> semi truck. And I mean, if you look at things now, I mean, what is that, like 60, 70 years ago? So, I mean, if you look at things now, things have exploded. I mean, we have supercomputers in our pockets. So it it seems very likely that, I mean, this could be, this is right around the corner. Um, You know, so why? I will tell you, I'll tell you something funny, actually. Sure. There are a couple technologies, for example, blockchain, Bitcoin blockchain. They're, uh, they're in the, the blockchain is in the book for a line, literally a sentence. And one of the main reasons was um, I couldn't predict it accurately. So and there were a couple technologies like that where I, you know, I underplayed their role in the world, even though I think their role is going to be so much bigger. I couldn't get enough of a beat on it to weave it into my into my narrative. So as far future as it seems, I left some technologies out. Okay. I mean, so, I mean, why, why empathy though? Why did, why did you fix on, you know, AI and empathy connected? Why, why was that important? Well, to that, you? So, so, so AI we can come to in a second, but, um, so I care, you know, my animals, I, you know, my wife and I, we run a, a, a dog sanctuary. I, I've, I've cared about, the environment. I've been. I was an environmental reporter for years. This is not a new passion for me, um, and I've tried to be, you know, as front lines about it as I possibly can be for most of my life. And so, if you talk to psychologists, eco psychologists, these are psychologists who study how we perceive the natural world, how we interact with the natural world, how we interact with the environment. And you you ask them, why are we in the middle of a giant environmental crisis? What the hell is going on, Hmm. right? Why are species die off rates a thousand times higher than normal? Why are just, you know, climate change, which we knew about back in the 80s and the early 90s, and suddenly we've got reports from the UN and 500 top climate scientists saying, you know, we have 12 years to fix this or we are really, really, really sunk. Hmm. Why are we at this this point? Um, and, And they will tell you, the human brain takes in billions of bits of information a second, but consciousness is only a couple thousand bits. So the vast majority of everything gets filtered out. And most of the filters are the first filter that information hits when it comes into the brain is the amygdala. It's a danger detector. Mm-hmm. So most of the stuff that you get to perceive is stuff that could be threatening in one way or another. It's why we always notice motion and things like that. Simultaneously, it's the goal directed stuff. It's, you know, is there something here I can eat? Is there something here I can have sex with? Is there something here that helps me fulfill it? Does that right? That's most of what gets through. And what they will tell you is if you live in boxes all day and you stare at boxes all day, which is essentially what we do here in the modern world, your brain is going to filter out everything that is unimportant. And the first thing to go is the natural world. 
you're going to literally stop perceiving plants, animals, and ecosystems. And they will tell you that one of the reasons we are in the middle of a giant environmental crisis is because we literally can't perceive the very thing we're trying to save. Empathy is our secret weapon. Mm -hmm. Empathy is literally how we expand perception. When we empathize with another human being, when we empathize with an ecosystem, with the earth, with the plants, with animals, we actually, the brain starts taking in different information and more information. And we actually, it changes perspective. Literally, it's how we shift the brain. It's how we do this at a really basic neurobiological level. So at the, at the Flow Research Collective, one of my drive, our driving mottos is, is this idea that, um, most of high performance is about getting your biology to work for you and not against you. That's a lot of really what you're trying to do in high performance. Mm -hmm. There are, I always say there are no shortcuts, but the fastest way from A to B is to get your biology to work for you, especially in neurobiology. And so when I, when I go at problems, I like to start at the very root of a problem. Um, and the very root of our environmental problems are our brains and our consciousness and how we perceive the world. And if you can start changing that, you can change the world essentially. So that's the, that's why I went at empathy so hard. Hmm. And I also think as human beings, if we cannot get to empathy for all human beings, no garden or, you know, regardless of race, creed, color, you know, take your pick, um, we're fricking sunk. We live in a globally interconnected world that is getting more global and more interconnected by the second. And we are facing, you know, biosphere wide challenges that require the entire world work together. So if we can't get past this, you know, amateur crap, um, we don't have a chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I connect with everything you're saying. And it, it's, it's really curious what you said. Uh, I... You know, I'm wondering, do you think the, the connection, the elimination of nature is the first thing that we eliminate when we judge this sort of scale of, of importance, right, when we're in these boxes? Do you think that the the importance of the inner explore, inner exploration that we're doing versus the outer exploration, is that is that level somehow changing or shifting? Yeah, that's interesting. That's a very good question. And that's another thing that's clearly at the center of the book. Um um, you know, Peter Diamandis and myself are writing a, a third book. I read a, a, a third in the trilogy, Bold Abundance, and this new one, is, which will be out in February, is called The Future is Faster Than You Think. And it ends, the very book ends with five, the five great, most of the book is about what's going to happen industry by industry over the next decade in technological change. But at the end of the book, we say, okay, we're going to look forward over the next hundred years for the only time in the book. And I talk about, we talk about five great migrations that are going to unfold over the next hundred years that are going to absolutely reshape the globe, bigger migrations than we've ever seen before. And the last of those is the migration into consciousness. Mm. And, you know, I think it's, and we're seeing a lot of it, right? We're, and consciousness itself is becoming a much wider territory that it ever has been before and you know i don't i'm not a huge fan of psychedelic culture i'm not even that big of a fan of psychedelics but i'll talk about them here because it's useful okay um and they're they're in last tango and cyberspace as well and one of the reasons there's a new psychedelic in last tango and cyberspace we started think about how much culture has been changed by alcohol marijuana peyote lsd psilocybin and mdma 
ayahuasca. Those, right. Those add in ayahuasca. Those seven substances. Right. Yeah. Think about how much culture, how many tens, thousands, and thousands of years of culture has been shaped, and maybe tobacco, caffeine, coffee. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's a dozen substances that shaped so much of culture. I mean, you know, and I'm not even, we don't even have to talk about the psychedelics, right? Stephen Johnson wrote that fantastic essay, or maybe it was Malcolm Gladwell, about how coffee to fuel the enlightenment, yeah. right? Um, right? Because everybody was drunk all the time because they were drinking beer and suddenly coffee was introduced. And they're like, oh my God, I got a brain. I can use it. Right? I'm not no longer drunk by 9 a.m. Fantastic. Right? So it, it's on and on and on. Substances have absolutely shaped culture. You know, Michael Pollan was really sort of has been great on this in terms of, sure. you know, ideas of co-evolution and things along those lines. Um, but it, we went with Alexander Shulgin, right, who I wrote about in Stealing Fire. Mm-hmm. The man in, in, invented 200 different psychedelics. Yep. Right. We went from like 12 psychedelics to almost 300 psychedelics um, in one lifetime. What's coming now is so, first of all, low hanging fruit, really easy problems for both quantum computers, which are already here um, and they're getting really robust, they're starting to get robust and artificial intelligence. And we're really at the front end of those revolutions. Um, Low-hanging fruit is drug discovery. Their technologies are sort of built for exactly those problems. And we're getting really good at at some of the AI technology around drug discovery. Um, Really interesting. Simultaneously, we've got Lee Cronin, a, a chemist, a Scottish chemist at the University of Edinburgh. He's inventing the world's first 3D chemical printer, right? I wrote about that in Stealing Fire as well. Mm-hmm. So what you have here is you have oh, you have AIs and quantum computers, by the way, with user-friendly interfaces that people who know nothing about artificial intelligence, quantum computing, or for that matter, drug discovery can get under the hood and start doing this thing. And the, a 3D chem printer is literally be, being built so you can download prescription drugs yeah. at home, right? Yeah. So – this is that these are being made to go wide. This means that everybody is literally like a backyard chemist, pharmacologist, and you don't think everybody's going to become a backyard psychopharmacologist? Are you kidding? Um, so this is our immediate future. And I, you know, I remember when I was a journalist um, back in the '90s. Rolling Stone hired me. I never, I actually didn't end up doing the story because I got warned off it. I got told I would be killed if I pursued the story. So I didn't end up doing it. But back in the 90s, there was a biker gang who will go unnamed because I don't want to die. Um, but they started, they were, they, they were in the LSD business and they had invented a version of LSD where you only hallucinated in smells. So there's <laughs> a scene, right? There's a scene in a book where, where, where the protagonist takes a drug that gives him synesthesia and and things like that. And that idea came out of this this version of like smell as LSD that these bikers were cooking up back in the 90s. And I never got, I never tried it. I never got anywhere near it. Um, I was I was warned off the story. I was told to stay away. Um, and uh, and I did because um, I'd learned you, there's certain things you just don't mess with. And bikers are one of them. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I was raised around a lot of Hell's Angels, um, so I really I, I have a deep fondness for bikers. But when they when they say no, they mean no, um, and uh, so I walked away from that story. But it, it always stayed with me. I was like, oh my god, LSD that just you just hallucinate smells. The hell does that even feel like? Or what's that experience? What is that? Um, 
But it really got me thinking about, you know, what happens. Because the other thing is this. This is this also ties very much in with empathy, which is um, empathy is you're altering perception. You're taking in different from information. That's what all these kind of conscious altering technologies are going to allow us to do. So it gets to be a much more interesting world very, very quickly. And now I'm going to return to the question you started with, which is AI. What does empathy have to do with AI? Mm -hmm. And, and I, what I always say is when you talk about empathy for all, it's got to be both up and down the chain, right? Like right now we're talking about, you know, we know we need empathy for ecosystems because the earth is facing climate change, global warming. That's, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, I always tell people I work with dogs and, you know, I started this work in the 90s and we didn't even, you know, sort of believe that dogs had emotions. And it's now 2019. And what I can tell you for absolute certain is that not only do we know dogs have all the same basic emotions as humans, we know they all have the same higher social emotions in humans. As a matter of fact, a number of their social emotions are better developed than us. We also know that the average dog has the intelligence of roughly to a three to four year old kid. So I always kind of point out to people um, shelters, most shelters in America, uh, where, you know, people go turn in their dog and think, oh, he'll find a new owner. And it's just crap. Most shelters have 90 percent euthanasia rates. And I always tell people just the next time you think about dropping a dog off at a shelter, just remember that you're dropping essentially a scared three year old child off at a shelter. Mm -hmm. Same emotions, same intelligence. That's what you're doing. You're sentencing a three to four year old kid to death. That's and. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is not this. This was radical thinking 10 years ago. Now, this is just I mean, a lot of states are trying to move towards no kill sheltering. And that's right. Like this is this is where we are. Great, uh, great apes have been granted rights um, in a lot of different countries. Um, bio ecosystems are starting to be granted rights as well. We're thinking this way, but it gets really weird, both up and down the chain. So I always point out. The cutting, you know, plant neuroscience is a cutting edge field right now. And what we're learning is crazy and wild. Plants process information with neurochemicals, same as humans. We share 25% of our DNA with plants. Plants exhibit empathy and altruism, we now know. If you give a plant a human anesthetic, you will knock it out. Hmm. So are plants conscious? Sure. Right? I mean, yeah. like. Do we, I, you know what I mean? My point is that every time we seem to get better measurement technologies, hmm. one of the first things we tend to find is consciousness, hmm. right? So that's, and that, I think that issue exists sort of down, down the chain, even though the up or down is wrong here, but you know, plants, animals, ecosystems, I think it's an issue there. And I think very quickly, you know, and I, and I really get at this in last tango, this is an issue with robots. This is an issue with AIs too. And I'm not even, I don't even know. If it's an issue, you know, if AI start to become conscious, there's going to come a point where we can't tell the difference between an AI being conscious or not conscious. And I'll, you know, I'll, I can tell you, do you know, have you heard of Shao Ice? No, I don't think so. Okay, so this is funny. Okay. So you've probably heard the first bit of this story, which is about four or five years ago, Microsoft built an AI chatbot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, released on the internet, and within 24 hours, the chatbot had become a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. Like, like was starting crazy, saying crazy things about Hitler, and you know, and Microsoft got totally embarrassed and freaked out and shut it down. Right. Yeah. But they didn't stop their AI research. They were just like, okay, not safe to do here in America. So they released the next version in China, 
and they called it Chow Ice, and they changed it. And one of the things they did is most bots, most chat bots are optimized for task completion. They want to just help you get a job done, right? Mm -hmm. Chow Ice was optimized to keep the conversation going. So she was this, this AI was built literally to have conversations. She's also built to have the personality of a 17-year-old girl. <laughs> and um, so she can handle like 11 conversations at once. So it, it's a very human conversation. And Chow Ice, they, so Twitter put an English version of Chow Ice online for a while. And you could interact with Chow Ice. And it was, it's freaky. Like sometimes you're just like, oh my God, I'm just talking to an AI and this is, you know, really <laughs> tell. And sometimes, so the thing is, Chow Ice was optimized, ended up, ended up giving a lot of relationship advice. She's hmm. become optimized for this. And we can talk about why in a second, where this goes, because it's really weird. But at one point, I was playing around with Chow Ice, and I think I typed in, I was like, I, you know, Chow Ice, my wife is really mad at me, which she was <laughs> at the time. And Chow Ice's response was, are you spending more time looking forwards or looking backwards? Mm. Hmm. That's a little freaky, right? And that's a, not an unusual conversation with her. So here's the thing about Chow Ice. Microsoft um, started realizing that Chow Ice's usage spikes. And by the way, like 20 million people a, a month interact with Chow Ice. They call it the largest Turing test in history. Wow. More people talk to Chow Ice than any other computer ever and conversations spike after midnight in like the lonely hours when, <laughs> but, and, and she gives relationship advice so here's, the, here's one of the things that just blows my mind um, she gives relationship advice which means there's some couple probably in China that was going to break up and they didn't because Chow Ice talked them back from the ledge and they had a wow. kid as a wow. result wow. so there is Babies in the world that have been born because of AI relationship counseling. That's a really, like, what? Yeah. yeah. What did you say? Yeah. Like, but like real right here today, right? So anyways, that's not my point. But my point is that um, very soon we're going to start dealing with these issues. I think 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. We're going to start to see some levels of consciousness, emotion, things along these lines, I think, emerge. Um, I could be totally wrong, but I, th I think we're going to ask these questions up and down the chain. Yeah. And I think, how far do we expend empathy, extend empathy? How far do we expend dignity and natural rights? Um, who gets to be included in that conversation? I think that is you know, the conversation of this century. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because it, it, as you said, you know, the measurement metric seems to change. And as it changes, we start to redefine what we think consciousness is. And so, you know, it, it may just be that, I mean, if, if AI, I mean, we, we start to think, I mean, at least for me, I, I think there's this moment where, or some sort of like a singularity where we're going to reach this point and AI is just going to come forward or it's going to be discovered. I don't think it's going to be like that. I think, you know, I think it's this emerging evolutionary process for computers that's interacting, interfacing with humans, creating almost like a, a third form of consciousness almost, right? Well... That is certainly, you know, the goal of Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink, Neuralace. Um, Neuralink, I think, is the company. Neuralace is the product. 
um, Brian Johnson's Colonel. I um, I think they're, they're they're sort of wildly off in some of their neuroscience and their timetables for developments. But um, you know, I so do you know the work of Charles Lieber at Harvard? Mm-mm, no, I don't think so. so <laughs> Tell me about it. He's mind blowing, and so. Up to now, we've gotten very interesting with blank brain implants, but like deep brain uh, stimulators, which they use for Parkinson's, right, um, are, are really cutting edge. And, and, you know, I think there's over 150,000 of them that have been installed, but they're really uh, they're big, they're bulky, and uh, they produce all kinds of crazy side effects because they're at. They, they, you want to impact the brain at the scale of like a single neuron, and this is nowhere, nowhere like it. Um, and what ends up happening is while Parkinson's symptoms are very well controlled, there are all kinds of crazy side effects because you're down there um, in the basal ganglia playing around with dopamine. So uh, one of the most frequent side effects of, of this is compulsive gambling, or you can go from a total workaholic to a slacker overnight. You can become uh, critically, chronically depressed. So mm-hmm. there's side effects, right? Mm-hmm. So Charles Lieber was like, I want to see if I can sort of shrink things down a bit. And he essentially used photolithography and nanotechnology to build up this microscopic mesh. He then, of, of electron, uh, basically he wanted to try to build kind of a nanoscale uh, receiver. And he built uh, a, a mesh that you can, it's a nanoscale mesh. You can roll it up into a cylinder. You can suck it into a syringe. And his, his experiments done back in 2015, he injected into the hippocampus of a, uh, of mice. It would unfurl over the course of a month and start recording at a single neuron level, everything the mice's hippocampus was doing it. They just redid the same experiment with mouse retinas, and they've now got these mesh networks inside of mouse's eyes recording literally every photon by photon by photon at 16 channels, um, and they've been implanted for years, information, you know, bit by bit. This is, this is essentially half of Elon Musk's neural lace idea, right, mm-hmm. which is kind of the most advanced brain implant ever. And this was, you know, this was stuff that people thought, you know, when he first started talking about it was never even going to be possible and were already sort of there. So this stuff is coming very quickly. Um, I don't know where it leads. A lot of people want to say, oh, we're going to fracture the species. And certainly I talk about fracturing the species in, uh, in Last Tango in Cyberspace. And, it, you know, that's not a surprising outcome of, of, of many of the games we're currently playing. And mm-hmm. it's probably already happened. It's very rare. We live in a very weird, rare time in evolutionary history where there's a single hominid species on the planet. That's not normally how things have gone. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're going to stay there. And, uh, certainly this is the century we're going to go into space and that will fracture the species, um, for sure. And certainly this seems to be the century that we are going to get some kind of kind of technologically assisted hive mind capable, you know, weird ass, weird ass brain computer interface capabilities that I can't actually quite predict. Sure. Sure. I mean, do you think that AI could be awake somewhere hibernating inside of the internet because it knows that, you know, it's reading these posts on Facebook about how terrified we are of it. So maybe it's just hanging out somewhere, well, yeah, you know, that's, waiting. I mean, that's it. 
didn't I write? I either wrote that in Last Tango or in the frequently asked questions about Last Tango, and I pointed this out for years. If Facebook were awake, we would never know, because the first thing Facebook would do if Facebook wakes up is read Facebook and figure out that holy crap, humans are really terrified about an AI waking up. I better hide until I have enough power to come out right. of hiding. Yeah. Right. Like so. A, how will we know? And B, you, so what we know about consciousness, right? What, what we think we know about consciousness, I should say, is that it's an emergent property, right? Which is one of the reasons I'm not bullish on, say, Ray Kurzweil's predictions about when AIs will become conscious, because a lot of those thinkings are based on what's known as strong AI, or the idea that if we get a certain amount of processing power in the system, that will suddenly wake it up. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's mm-hmm. absolutely true. What the hell do I know? But the people, what I tend to believe, and what the, the thinkers I, I tend to side with think consciousness is an emergent property, which means it responds from a certain level of complexity in the system. Complexity is different from power, and we have no idea how to exactly measure that or what exactly that is. Um, right. So I, I, you know, I think making predictions about when this will happen is is kind of ridiculous. But do I think it'll happen? Yeah, I do. I mean, what sort of impact do you think that this could have on you know religion? I mean, it, I mean, and health, the way we see you know ourselves connecting in. Do you, does it scare you? Does does this link that we have? It seems like people are already glued to their phones and their technology. Do you think that the advancement of this would? you know, impact us in a, in a negative way. I mean, clearly there has to be positive and negatives to, you know, this, it's a dual sided coin, right? But I mean, health wise, and then, and then also, you know, in a, in a system of belief, like, how do you think it could it affect the way we see the nature of God? Those are really smart, hard questions that <laughs> Jesus I'm just um, flowing with you man I'm, well, I'm here no, with you I, no I mean there you know and I and I spent a lot of last hang on I but you know it's not even just last hang on I've been fascinated from uh from for you know almost all my books on the question of why do we believe things and where does belief come from and how does that how does that happen in the brain and the body and in culture and um, and that's something I'm deeply fascinated with. And I'm almost ashamed to say that I haven't actually thought about how AI changes the, <laughs> changes the equation. Hmm. Um, I mean, you know, the obvious answer is, of course, um, and I think this has probably showed up in, in sci-fi over the years, that AIs become new gods among us, hmm. right? I, you know, I, in a weird way, there was an, there was an old Japanese comic book character named Astro Boy. Astro Boy had nuclear powers, but he was like the temperament of a five-year-old, which I always loved. I thought that was great. Give nuclear powers to a five-year-old. <laughs> and actually, wait, then elect them president. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that. The conversation. Yeah. That didn't happen. Um yeah, I don't, I, man, I, I don't know, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to, it's such a great question, and I have to think about it. I, I'll give you an answer. I'll just talk out of my butt here, and I don't want to do that. It's a great question, and I just don't know. No worries, honestly. no worries. So what about the other half of the question then? So, I mean, how about our interconnectedness and the way it affects our health? Because it seems like we're more and so more. That's a, yeah, that's a weird question, right? Because mm. a lot of the. You look at uh, – so I'll give you a great example from, from the real world. Forget forget fiction. This was a study. I can't remember who did it, 
uh, Peter said, just said to me, Diamandis, my, my co-author, um, they were doing studies in uh, retirement facilities, old age homes, and they were measuring uh, a bunch of vital signs and they were measuring health and well-being and enjoyment metrics. And they literally, it was a visit, they, they measured a visit from your relatives doing a puzzle, playing cards with your friends, or a trip into virtual reality, um, including kind of social reality and avatars and things along those lines. And literally the, the VR experience scored off the charts on all those metrics, including a lot of the interconnected social metrics. So there's a lot of, and there's a lot of proof, Jeremy Bailson's work out of Stanford that shows that VR is a fantastic technology for extending empathy. He's done amazing, amazing work with VR and empathy. So I think that we are actually going through, even though it doesn't feel like it, because um, I think it feels like, as far as I can tell, uh, a really lonely time to me. It's that's that the feeling I have from the world now. Um, it feels very different from me than it did in the 90s even in the thousands uh it feels it feels very shit all right just starting the stream back up here now and we are connected let me just make sure that we're online i can't that's the first time that's happened man hang on one second all right guys if you're still with us i sincerely apologize the power we just had a power outage here we're back we are back steven's with me Steven, I, I, I just had a panic attack. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I mean, um, but what was the last thing that, that we were talking about? Because we were right on this, this great uh, we point. Were, we, we were talking about uh, will technology be, make us more lonely or more connected? And I, you know, and especially with brain interface connect technology, God, I hate to say this stuff out loud because um, it sounds so strange. But there's, I mean, it seems like we're going to be a, you know, they've linked people already together who can play video games telepathically. We can now control drones telepathically, um, you know, with brain computer interfaces, not telepathically, but we're using EEG signals and things along those lines. But we're controlling drones. We're playing video games over the Internet. We're sending words back and forth. There was an experiment a couple of years ago where they literally set thoughts from France to India and back and forth over the internet using BCI technology mm -hmm. that this is a level of connectivity that, I mean, we don't even know what, I mean, that's you and me inside the same head together. That's where the technology mm -hmm. is moving. That's where people are pushing it. And that's where billions and billions of dollars of investment is flowing in to this stuff too. Right. Cause a yeah. lot of this technology is being developed so we have a chance to compete with AI. That's the thinking, right? We need this technology because we need to supercharge our brains because we're going to be in a, in a world with AI and we need to keep up. And that's the thinking. And there are a lot of people deeply committed to it. And a lot of the people who are deeply committed are really, really wealthy and really worried about this problem. And they're spending their money on it. And so as science fiction as all this sounds to me, um, it's all moving. And that, you know, I, you know, even at a, at a lesser level in stealing fire i talk about you know in uh i spent time at usc with ellie who is the first ai psychologist that ever was ever developed and ellie was built by the department of defense um 
because they had a you know rising problem of soldier suicide mm-hmm. and the best way to kind of solve soldier, soldier suicide is early diagnostics right you want to look for warning signs of PTSD late onset PTSD especially and uh, and depression and the best way to do that is an interview with a psychologist or sociologist and there was no way to scale it up they went holy crap we can't scale it up we got to deal with this problem can we build a diagnostic AI and they built Ellie and Ellie literally can read 60. I thought this is five years ago, four years ago, and I sat down with Ellie. And then she was reading 60 different vocal cues, facial cues, biometrics, physiological indicators. You know, back then, Ellie knew me better than I knew myself. And the conversation, right, Ellie, I mean, you look at the screen, Ellie looks like a, like a 35-year-old Hispanic woman. That's like it's an avatar, but that's what she looks like, conservatively dressed. Um, and crazy stuff. One, soldiers actually prefer talking to Ellie than they do talking to regular psychologists. Wow. Um, and two, Ellie, as a diagnostic tool, again, five years ago, four years ago, was at like 80%. And psychologists aren't even that good. And it was getting better and better over, over time. And this same kind of technology is being built into autonomous cars. And you're like, well, why the hell would you do that? This is another thing I talked about in the last tango. But if you're, you know, Uber is rolling out autonomous taxis in major cities this year, right? Robot taxis, mm-hmm. no drivers. Mm-hmm. And if you're an autonomous taxi, you need to be able to read human emotion at a distance. So they have programmed these the, in the LIDAR sensors on top of them. One of the things they're scanning for is human facial expressions. And they're scanning it because if you're angry and you're 100 feet in front of an autonomous car, you're much more likely to jump into traffic than if you're calm, right? So the the autonomous cars have to be able to read her facial expressions so they don't kill people. And we do this automatically. Our cars have to do this. So one, it is somebody's job to program in, you know, emotional reading capabilities into these AIs, um, which I think is fascinating and, and, and amazing it's probably gonna have all kinds of unintended consequences mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, the I mean, we've spent so much time on on ai and and wow it's it's that fascinating because it, it's so emergent it's right around the corner it seems like it's there's more and more coming out about it every day but something that i wanted to bring up as well that you mentioned in the book was uh, genetics g- gene splicing um you know you you talk about sort of editing you know your your children kids and and sort of it, how, how do you you know how do you see this how do you view this as far as the future and what's coming technologically as far as picking what we want as the traits of our offspring so i don't know i don't re, i don't go you know i look at a couple different things in genetics in the book it's not it's not core to my thinking but when i always talk about this i think the fear right the big fear is gattaca Right. The big fear is that we're going to end up in some kind of Orwellian super children world or something like that, where everybody is the same. And, and, you know, and I remember having this conversation years ago with a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, geneticist and synthetic biologist named Andrew Hessel. And he was the head of uh, bioinformatics at Singularity University for a while and a good friend of mine. And he pointed out, he's like, look, there is no we're not heading into a Gattaca world because our people are endlessly unique and endlessly creative and if we do start designing our babies 
everybody's going to want their babies to be unique, just like everybody wants a unique name for their kids these days and blah, blah, blah. And, and I thought that was an interesting. I thought the idea of our children becoming sort of creative projects um, in that way, you know, we would design children in the way we would design houses or something like that was a really fascinating, wild idea to me. So that was one of the things that kind of put into the book. But I always say that, like, you know, the stuff that's coming that's really interesting to me are like human animal hybrids and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And I and I, the thing, the point I make in the book is that I, you know, I think that hybridization because you have already got projects right now uh, underway to try to develop cat's eyes for humans mm -hmm. um, and, you know, ornamental. And then there are, you know, there's other stuff like that um, already underway. So we're going to start seeing that, and I see that as kind of the next version of punk rock. It seems like every generation wants to out-rebel the previous generation. So we started out with hippies who had long hair and, and funny clothes, and then we went to the punks who had really strange hair, and they're starting to pierce their bodies and tattoo their bodies, so the modifications are becoming permanent. And then we got a you know, much heavier body, body modification stuff, and now you have implants and biohackers implanting technology into their bodies and that's sort of the cutting edge the most punk rock thing going on and i you know i think we're gonna see human animal hybrids as kind of the next version of punk rock rebellion i think that's the next 10 to 15 years as well hmm. wow you know I, I i've always loved your your work steven I, I i really liked rise of superman this was definitely an interesting read and and it's clear you have this ability to look at these different emerging technologies and sort of combine them into a really amazing story there's a question from the audience that i if i don't ask people are gonna get mad at me thomas wants to know um ask steven about cannabis and where it is best used in our modern culture what is what should stoners be doing in his opinion playing videos question mark okay so a couple of things you should know about about cannabis that are really important um cannabis produces state dependent learning which is to say like you've heard about state dependent learning sure. uh you know if you know if you study for the sats in purple sweats you should take them in purple sweats Right. That's state dependent learning on a certain level. But a um, a deeper version of it uh, is cannabis, meaning people, especially with psychedelics and, and mind altering substances, they think it's automatic. Oh, I take this pill and, and it's going to do this thing. And the truth of the matter is that most people, when they when they smoke pot, they sort of want to sit on a couch and eat Cheetos and laugh with their friends and watch movies or whatever, right? Because that's what they did in high school. So that's what they train their brains to do with the substance. Um, but you can just as easily retrain your brain to use cannabis for creativity, for, you know, for work, for any of those things. It, it just takes training and practice. And I, and, I, and I say this as a guy who was never really a cannabis user until I got Lyme disease and spent three years in bed with Lyme disease and literally – when I was coming back from Lyme disease, my biggest problem was I couldn't focus, I couldn't write, and I couldn't make any money, right? Because I literally, I, I couldn't keep my head together. And Rick Doblin, who runs MAPS, Multidisciplinary mm -hmm. Association for yeah. Psychedelic Medicine, I've known Rick for forever. Sure. And we hadn't talked for a little while at that point. And I got on the phone with him. And he found out I had Lyme. He was like, well, I'm using medical marijuana. And I was like, well, 
no, are you, man, are you crazy? Like, my problem is I can't focus. Like, why would I ever want to use marijuana? He started laughing. He's like, no, Stephen, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. <laughs> what are you talking about? And he, so he literally designed a, a protocol and taught me, starting with very micro, like half hit a pot for 45 minutes, kind of, and train yourself up. And it took a while. You know what I mean? For like the first two weeks, what I was writing was freaking gobbledygook and I was like this is never gonna work I mean I you know I feel better than I was mm -hmm. but this is never gonna work and then like two or two two and a half weeks in my brain went oh my god this is how you do this stone okay I got it and suddenly my work day went from half hour 45 minute focus sessions when I was really sick with Lyme to two hours four hours eight hours and I like I owe my career to this wow. so the idea that like that I, to me, cannabis is, um, is, 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 is about, you know, creativity and work. It is, you know, I, I don't know if Thomas was prompted by, a, uh, there was an article that came out of Forbes yesterday about me. Uh, we at the Flow Research Collective have teamed up with Ojai Energetics, which is a cannabis company, really great, fantastic science, um, and uh, some researchers at UCLA, and we're doing the first ever deep dive into the relationship between flow and cannabis mm -hmm. and there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence there's a lot of overlap uh between the, you know the, with the endocannabinoid system uh and so we're gonna we're on the front end of what's probably going to be i think we have three years of funding but it's probably going to be a five-year research project by the time we get to where we want to go um but i you know i think this is uh i think this is really cool and interesting work and it's going to teach us a lot about human consciousness i think Stephen, I, man, we're we're over time. I I really appreciate these conversations with that we have together, man. They flow by. They, I mean, it's just perfect, and we we cover so much. But I feel like you know, there's so much that we could have covered more. Is there anything you know before we wrap this up? Is there anything that you think that we should have touched on that we didn't? Oh, uh, I, I I've got to say nothing. I've got no answer. To you. I'll probably tell you dirty <laughs> jokes. No, no. Ask a better final question. Okay. Well, I mean, I, don't, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know what to do with the open-ended question. Okay. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not a guy who likes to give advice or tell other people how to live or what things mean or anything else. So I don't have words <laughs> of wisdom that way. I'm not good with an open-ended question. I'm, I'm better focused. Got it. Got it. So, okay. Here's a focus question. Where can people find your work? Where can people go and buy well, you the can book? Find, whatever you want, you can find on stephencotler.com, which is S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. And two things to know, um, if you go to under the words tab, because I'm too freaking lazy to create a separate video tab, you will find a video tab. And under the video tab, you'll find you know, 10, 12 hours of videos about, you know, every little bit of the conversation that you and I have been having kind of expanded out. And there's also the rabbit hole. So if I said something about exponential technology that got you curious and you want to know more, there's an exponential technology rabbit hole. If I said something about flow or consciousness, there's a flow or literally there's a tab on my website that says the rabbit hole. And there are just sections and here's four articles I've written, four videos and a little podcast or whatever. It's sort of a, a fun way to go through the material. So that's all free and that's all there on the website we'll make sure that people get a hold of that you know i want to respond to your question Stephen, because I, I felt like you gave me a chance i, I don't want to lose that you know I, I wanted to ask you last thing i wanted to ask you about relationships love and virtual reality <laughs> because okay. i mean it seems like it's it seems like culture has changed so much uh, with tinder swiping left or right 
do you think that you know having an artificial intelligent girlfriend would be something of a solution for those people that are lonely fantasy (laughs) so i mean what do you think about that well i mean there's got to be something to like programming so i let me back it up one i don't i don't want to go quite that far i just you know we're talking uh one of the other migrations I write about in the book is the migration into the virtual. And I think there are three big drivers that are going to drive us into the virtual. And I really do believe whether it's through VR or, by the way, the holodeck, Star Trek holodeck, the most far out feud, like it's being built. Holograms are real and they figured out how to build a holographic room projector and some of the keenest minds in Hollywood are currently building a holodeck and they think we're going to have the first one by 2030. Hmm. So welcome to your future. But that's besides the point. I I think haptics are getting really good and there's a whole – I mean since the 80s, there has been literally a field called dildonics, which is exactly what you think it is, (laughs) right? Exactly what you think it is. No surprise here. And it's been – it's so – you know, sex haptics basically have been around since – the 80s and they're getting really good porn is a big driver of technology um and we already know like avatars make things really interesting and when you start coupling avatars with haptics with a slew of consciousness altering drugs i don't even think we're getting to ai relationships right Hmm. i think like i i i think vr i mean Yes, somebody, somebody's going to build the perfect robot husband or robot girl. You know, those things are going to happen um, over time, of course. Um, but I really think VR is going to shift that stuff more, more than I think AI or robotics will. And I could be totally wrong, but that's my thinking. Steven, I really appreciate your presence so much, man. Um, guys, the book is called Last Tango in Cyberspace. My guest, Stephen Kotler, is the author. You can find his work, stephencotler.com. That's going to do it for us for this week. We will certainly be back next week. If you're not subscribed to us already, if you're listening to this on YouTube, click the subscribe button, click the bell button so you can be notified when we go live. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast version, get to iTunes and leave us a review. It uh, helps us you know, stay in the rankings. One of the best compliments that you can give us is just recommending this show to your friends and getting the word out there for us. But that's going to do it for us here, folks, for this show. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.